Hello, family. My name is Ben Dodson, one of the elders here, and um, it's my privilege to get to share with you John 4, 1 through 30. And I just want to tell you we have a lot to cover, um, so be ready. Probably want to pin out because we're not going to be able to hit every little detail of this passage, but I believe we'll hit the full content that we need to get. Um, our pursuit kind of in this passage is to see that it's full of hope. And that hope is only found when we find truth. And that truth will reveal what is a lie. So that's what we're after today. And to get us going, I'd like to share a few quotes with you just to kind of set up this concept that we live in a thirsty land. You'll see the title uh, for the sermon today is Living Water in a Thirsty Land. I just want to warn you that these quotes are going to leave you a little bit hanging. Um, they're not going to answer everything. They're going to probably cause some more questions, um, but hang in there, and we'll process them as we go. The first one comes from a man named George Sanders, and he was an actor back in 1950. He was a leading man in Hollywood. He had had two marriages, both to probably the most beautiful women of the time within the realm of actresses. Um, he was a graduate of Cambridge University. He's a brilliant mathematician. In some, he's just a man of exceptional mental and social abilities. And I want to read to you an excerpt from his suicide note. I'm committing suicide because I'm bored. I feel I have lived long enough. I leave you all in your sweet little cesspool, and I wish you luck. Did you know that the American suicide rate has increased 35% since 1999, and for 13 years consecutively, it has grown in number. There's a thirst in this land. Having made billions in the oil industry, John D. Rockefeller was once asked how much money was enough, and his answer was one more dollar. Actor and comedian Jim Carrey, he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. There's a thirst. There's also a source and a solution to this thirst. And I want to read to you a quote from one of the coolest names of a theologian that there is. His name is Blaise Pascal. I don't think you can beat that. It's pretty cool. Um, and here's what he had to say. Knowing God without knowing our wretchedness makes for pride. There's still a thirst there. Knowing our wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Still a thirst. But knowing Jesus Christ strikes a balance because he shows us both God and our wretchedness. So knowing Jesus Christ strikes a balance because he shows us both God and our wretchedness. So that gives us a little drop of water just to kind of swirl in our mouths as we heard all that thirst, right? As we look at John 4, 1 through 30, we're going to break it out into four different sections. And each section we're going to ask ourselves um, three questions, but we're also going to briefly examine what all is going on in those sections. The first question we're going to ask ourselves is, what unquenchable thirst do we see? Then we're going to ask ourselves, what do we see about Christ? And after that, what then should we be asking ourselves? 
we're basically trying to answer the same question the woman at the well has, but we're putting a small twist on it. Come and see the revealer of unquenchable waters. Is he the Christ? That's what we're chasing after. Maybe you can say it this way. It would be helpful. Come and see the revealer of unsatisfying sinful behavior. Is he the Christ? So let me read to you guys John 4, 1 through 9. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baking and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, asks for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, let's try to unpack what all is happening here. First, we see there's a concern with the Pharisees about Jesus, right? They already don't like John the Baptist. He's going around telling everyone you should repent, even them. So there's a dislike there. And Jesus is exceeding the baptisms of John the Baptist. So they have their eye on him, and there's becoming some discord. The Jewish religion has become so man-centered at this point that it's relying heavily upon religious activity. <clears throat> and they had abandoned the, love to law, abandoned the law to love God and neighbor. If you want to see what Jesus is thinking of the Pharisees at this time, if you go to Matthew 23, uh, you'll kind of get blown away. But I want to read you one verse out of that, and it is actually verse 23. How horrible it will be for you, experts in Moses' teachings, and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give God one-tenth of your mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These are the most important things in Moses' teachings. You have should, should have done these things without neglecting the others. So Jews, they were looking for a reformer, and instead of a restorer, which is what Jesus is. If we look back just a few verses to John 3, 35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given him all things into his hand. Or John 1, 3, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus didn't leave Judea because he was fearful. He knew he was on a collision path with the Pharisees, but this was not the time. So we do want to hear Jesus is not leaving out of fear. Verse 4 said that he had to pass through Samaria. And there's something there we need to examine when it says had to pass. Scholar Raymond Brown, uh, he kind of sets this up perfectly, I think. He says what's happening here is there's an expression of necessity, or this expression of necessity means that God's will or plan is involved. There's a divine reason Jesus is leaving and going to Samaria. We see in verse 6 that Christ is physically weary as he gets there and he's sitting by the well. 
the Word became flesh to be able to sympathize with our weaknesses, to know our temptations. And before I get into this other part, this is a perfect plug for servant leader training, SLT, if you haven't done it and you want to unpack more of who Christ is because we're, I mean, barely brushing it, uh, you need to join that class. And Roman Wally, our college pastor, leads it, and it's a phenomenal class to get involved with. Sorry, so jumping back in here, we got to know our temp- the Word became flesh to help us see and to sympathize with our weaknesses and to know our temptations so that he could also show and reveal that humanity itself is worthy of the highest value, no matter your race, your color, your gender, or your creed. So in this weakness of Christ, we also see humanity and why he came as a human. So as we look at verses 5 through 9, we see that not only have the Jews' religious add-ons begun to create blinders, they're also creating barriers. And that is not what God intended. In missing their calling to be a blessing to the nations, not known by their love of others, but their disdain and judgment of others. So there's a lot that could be said here about the Samaritans and the Jews. They didn't like each other. And this goes back for centuries. The Jews saw the Samaritans as like this half-breed, this unclean version. And so, so much so that they, it was just a defilement to even speak to them, much less travel through their land. Another barrier we see the Jewish religion had created was how women were viewed. And at this time, they had taken the Old Testament and were misusing it. And they were beginning to strip away rights of women. And they were trying, basically looked at women as like lesser humans. As though they're not image bearers of God equal to men. There were even Pharisees who took this to another level. And they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Because when they saw a woman in public, they would cover their eyes and run into things. You can see the extent of these barriers and blinders that they have on. So from a Jewish perspective, this woman really has nothing going for her. And that's even before we learn more about her, right? She's out at this well in the middle of the day to draw water. That's not normal. You go in the morning, you gather it for the day's work and go in the cool of the morning. She's trying to avoid society or people when she's there at midday. So as we look at this first section, let's ask ourselves this first set of questions. What unquenchable thirst do we see? When reliance upon man-centered performance is the way to salvation, all will suffer. That's basically what we're seeing here. This breakdown of communication with women and laws and rituals and barriers and blinders is because man has become the center of worship. And they're relying upon themselves for salvation. Why is this a barrier? Well, I mean, why is this bad? Because only God can accomplish salvation. And I want to read to you Isaiah 59, 9 through 13. I think it just does a fantastic job of showing us our hearts really is that is our pursuit therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us we hope for light and behold 
darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from the following of our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. That's an unquenchable thirst. What do we see about Christ? We see that Jesus is completely opposite of the Jews. He doesn't function out of fear and self-protection or self-interest. He's breaking down barriers that prevent the good news of the gospel going forward. So what we must, must we then ask ourselves? We have to ask ourselves, are we creating barriers to the gospel in our lives by the way of fear, self-protection, or self-righteousness? And a great question to ask ourselves is, how do I look at others who are not like me? Okay, that's our first section. We're going to move to John 4, 10 through 15, and I'll read that to us quickly. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So let's look at these set of verses. We see that Jesus is now taking this conversation from just the physical realm. He's trying to move it into a spiritual realm. He's taking it from a surface level. He's trying to drive it into the personal level. And we kind of see in her response that she's still on the surface level. She's not really wanting to go deeper at this moment. The spiritual realities seem really foolish to her. She's fixated on the physical She's trying to figure out how is Jesus even going to draw this living water he's talking about. He doesn't even have the means to do so. So in my opinion, we kind of see her respond on her heels, kind of deflecting this personal question and trying to rebound really quickly with a question of her own. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as his sons and his livestock. You can almost see her just kind of responding, right, in protection. And this kind of reminded me of a conversation I had with my daughter Lily just the other day about first grade math and how she got a score that she wasn't really excited about. And so I just had to ask her, I said, well, did you ask your teacher for help? And she said, no. And I said, okay, Lily, 
do you think it's better to like protect yourself and act like you're strong and you have everything figured out or is it better to open yourself up to be vulnerable acknowledge there's a weakness and ask your teacher for some help and she said i think it's probably better to be vulnerable and ask a teacher for help and so who do you think learned more in that analogy that was me and the Lord just laid that on there in the moment, and it just hit me like a rock, too. I mean, how many times have I been self-protective, acting like I'm strong, missing out on learning so many things because I wouldn't just say, I'm weak, I need help. So I think that's where we see this woman at the well in this moment. All right, jumping back in. The woman's question to Jesus is basically, are you greater than Jacob? Meaning, are you greater than the covenant that was set up with Abraham? If you remember, Jacob's not some slouch in this story. He's the last patriarch that we have with the covenant of Abraham. He's the one who wrestled with an angel. He's the one who was actually renamed Israel, and the 12 tribes are descending from him. So Jesus' response is astonishing to her. The water from Jacob's well will not satisfy. You will be thirsty again. You see, Jacob is just a mere man in God's story. Jesus is saying, I am the gift from the author of the story. And, I, and what I offer is thirst-quenching, eternally satisfying water. I am greater than Jacob. And there's kind of a cool wordplay I want to go back to. When we see the word welling up to eternal life, it's based actually off of human movement, not the way water moves. And it's associated with like jumping or leaping. So this eternal well that will well up um, is producing a fountain that's kind of jumping or leaping. So you can see excitement and vibrance and life that this creating this stream of water that's not going to run dry. So I'm sure some of you are asking what I was asking. Well, will you really never go thirsty again? And I like the insight I found in a commentary I came across, and it said, I do not believe our Lord is saying we will never spiritually hunger or thirst again, but he is saying that within us is implanted such a supply of water that we never have to go thirsty you see, I struggle, and when we struggle, we find ourselves drinking from an unsatisfying well. We don't have to track down, though, in this race to find where's the living water. It's inside of us. We have to repent of drinking from the wrong source. And we need to take a cool, crisp, satisfying drink from the implanted well. This implanted well is the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see this later in John 7. And I'm going to read to you really quickly John 7, verses 37 and 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, 
because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, we're back to our set of questions. What unquenchable thirst do we see? Looking to just our physical needs only is going to have us running a race that runs us from well to well to well. The unquenchable thirst is when we look to our physical needs only. So what do we see about Christ? He is a gift from God, the only source of living water, and he will satisfy. So then what must we ask ourselves? Are there areas in our life that have us waiting on the physical needs to be met before we decide to worship Christ? Are there areas in our life that have us waiting on the physical need to be met before we worship Christ? Do we look at God as though he owes us something? All right. John 4, 16 through 26. This is our next section. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is just really cool because we see Jesus in pursuit of this woman. And he reveals a taste of his divinity to her by asking her to bring her husband. And a quick, factual, deflecting response doesn't stop Jesus. He begins to lay before her her unquenched thirst, stating you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not even your husband. He is showing her that the well of the men that she is trying to satisfy herself with, it's an unquenching well. Not only that, there's a much bigger issue to deal with. So what I believe we're seeing at the woman at this point is that she, she's maybe turning to a hopeful position in the spiritual conversation with Jesus. I mean, can you imagine what's going through her mind at this point? She just was told sin in her life that she had not confessed to a man she doesn't know. Yet hopeful anticipation that the man in front of her may be able to relieve her of the guilt within. So she asks him, where do I go to worship? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We don't really agree on that. And this is one of their biggest areas of discord between the two of them. They, they believed in two different places to go to worship, Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. And so she's like, where do I go? We're split on that. 
And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So this unquenchable thirst has opened the door for Jesus to reveal to her that her thirst can only be quenched by right worship, not the location, right worship. Even if she is able to stop running from the well of men, she's going to move on to another unquenchable well because she has placed herself at the center of worship. Sin is misplaced worship. It reveals itself in all kinds of ways. Greed, envy, lust, deceit. But at its core, it's a worship of self over the worship of God. Jesus patiently answers her question and with some helpful truth. First, the woman needs to know that salvation will come from the Jews. The Samaritans are wrong and where they are looking for the Messiah. This doesn't mean that all Jews will be saved or that everything they're doing and practicing is correct, but it means that the Messiah will come from the Davidic line. Second, she needs to know the Father is in pursuit of true worshipers. And I'm sure this had to stir in her a thought. Is this happening right now? Through this Jew? Is the Father pursuing me? And third, true worship has two elements to it. You have spirit and you have truth. But spirit here is not referring to the Holy Spirit. It's referring to her inner being, her core, to her heart, to basically what makes you. This is not an outward obedience and not rule following. True worship asks all of you, And all of you, you must give. An important fact, though, about this is that it's impossible to give all of yourself without the Holy Spirit. And this is made clear back in John 3, 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we must have the Holy Spirit inside of us to be able to worship in spirit. We need Jesus Christ. So then the the other aspect is truth. And there's only one God worthy of worship. He's pursuing us. He is offering a free gift, his son. Your misplaced worship, your sin, is a rejection of that gift. And now is the time to believe and worship. That's the truth. That's how you worship in truth. God is the giver of the gift. You are the recipient. Now is the time to worship. Fourth, God is spirit and must be worshiped in spirit and truth. God is not some sort of material or another spirit among many other spirits. He's not bound by anything. He's a life-giving spirit. 
And so much, so in as much as he is a spirit, so must he be worshipped. That's a lot, right? So to summarize, worship is not fueled by us seeking after God, but that he is seeking us. And us understanding that is a truth and a gift from the Holy Spirit. God is seeking you. Lay down your life. You don't have to chase after him, but you will in obedience because the Spirit of God is going to affirm that truth of who God is. Okay. So what does the woman do with all of this that she's just been informed of? I believe at this point she is beginning to have a little well building up with some hope. The Messiah may be speaking with her, He may be pursuing her. So through a statement, I think she's really asking a question. So kind of read it like this. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. You can almost feel just this unquenched heart awaiting to drink from the satisfying waters and worship in spirit and truth. I picture her there. She has pushed all of her chips in, and she's eagerly awaiting what is Jesus going to say. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. I am everything you have been searching for in men. Your heart longs to worship And you have not only been worshiping in the wrong location, but the wrong object. Now is the time to believe. I mean, Jesus pursues all of us. This woman in society was on the bottom pole. And he is revealing to her that he is the Messiah. And the coolest thing about this right here is this is the first of his I am statements. He hasn't even revealed to his disciples that he's the Messiah. She gets that privilege. So what unquenchable thirst do we see? Powerless objects are given power to quench a thirst they can't quench. Powerless objects are given power to quench a thirst they can't quench. What do we see about Christ? He is the pursuing Messiah, and he is worthy of our worship. He is the pursuing Messiah, worthy of our worship. So what must we ask ourselves? What powerless objects, wealth, grades, appearance, status, alcohol, entertainment, are you giving power to as you worship yourself? We move into our last section here. John 4, 27 through 30. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. 
Can you see the unquenchable thirst? Can you see it? You can't see it. Because Christ had begun to meet the thirsts that were there. And then before we throw the disciples under the bus like we tend to do, I think what we're seeing here is this beautiful moment of spiritual maturity. You see, they refrained from saying, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? It doesn't mean they didn't think it, but they refrained from it. And that is the gospel intersecting with our brokenness, right? We don't just all of a sudden are fixed when we meet Jesus. He walks patiently with us as we grow in our faith and in our maturity. We see the woman has abandoned the physical. She was stuck on that, right? She's left her water jar and has run into town. She's embraced her sin and is pursuing the Messiah. That is freedom. She was hiding from society at midday at the well. Now she's going into the village saying, look, the man who told me all of my sins. Is he the Christ? Meaning she is chasing after this guy now because she's free to embrace her sin and lay it before Christ. That well has sprung up in the woman's heart and it is flowing out, a living water, and she's taking it to a village. And it ends with, they went out of the town and were coming to him. A whole village is coming to see Jesus because this woman is free of her sin, to confess it and say, this is not what defines me. Jesus is offering us a free gift. There is one true God. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's look at our next steps. We have an opportunity right here to just take a moment and to be self-reflective. And we see that Jesus wants us to commune with him and the Father, but we have to stop drinking from unquenchable wells. So what sin am I seeing in my life that is blinding me to the freedom I have in Jesus? Drink from the well of living water, the free gift of God has been offered to you, and by the Spirit, you get to experience God's love, His pardon, His presence, and His grace. The next one. The beauty of our God and the freedom of the gospel is that it takes the mind off of ourselves, and we get to become a benefit to other people. So as you worship in spirit and truth, streams of living water can infiltrate Nacogdoches and this world. So where in your workplace, your home, your hobbies, your daily routines, can you provide a drink to the thirsty? And our final step, how can you, like Christ, lay your life down for the benefit of others so that they may taste and see the goodness of our God, the God who knows all that you have ever done but sent his son to die for all that you have ever done? Will you pray with me? God, we are blown away by your mercy and your grace, your pursuit of us, and I pray, Father, that we would be set free, Father, 
to chase after you because we know that we have been pursued. That, Father, you love us and care for us and want to meet with us, and you will sit patiently with us and walk with us, protect us from judging others. May we just have the mindset that this world is thirsty and they need a drink from eternal life that is found only in Christ. You give us boldness to share the message of who your son is. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.